Martin went to bed that night. He just put his daughter to bed, seven-month-old daughter, Yolanda. And he was lying down in bed, just drifting off to sleep, and the phone rang. Martin picked up the phone. And uh, on the other end of the line was a man who was threatening to kill him. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill your family. I'm going to kill your new daughter. Martin was a church minister. He got up in the night and he made himself a cup of coffee. Sitting down in the kitchen at his kitchen table, drinking his coffee slowly, thinking, can I keep doing this? I could do it when it was just my life on the line. I could do it when it was my wife and my life on the line, but now I've got a seven-month-old daughter to think about. Everything's different with kids. Martin finishes his coffee and he's staring at the bottom of his coffee cup. And he hears God speak to him. And he says, Martin, stand up for truth. Stand up for justice. Stand up for what's right. And I'll be with you. Martin put the cup in the sink, went back to bed. Five days later, Martin's in a church hall. He's talking about a protest that they're going to be involved in. He's talking about a march that they're going to be involved in. He's talking about boycotting buses and not going on the buses. In the back, a young man runs in and he says, Dr. King, Dr. King, your house is on fire. Back at his house, his wife, the seven-month-old daughter and a friend of theirs were in the front room. They heard a bang on the front porch, decided that somebody might be throwing rocks at the windows. So they went into the back um, part of the house. So they shut the door to the front room that they had been sitting in. A firebomb went off out the porch, and the whole of the front room was engulfed in flames. Martin heard the boy as he was running in, closed the meeting quickly, and they ran back to his house, including the whole group of people that were with Martin then. He got to his house, and the whole house is in flames, his wife and his child are safe. And there's four police officers in two squad cars outside the front of the house waiting for the fire brigade to arrive. A mob appears, machetes, sticks, rifles, and four white police officers trying to keep the peace. And Dr. Martin Luther King stands in front of his house, and he says, put the sticks down. Put the machetes down, put the guns down. We will not win this with violence. We must stand up for truth, stand up for justice, stand up for what's right, and God will be with us. The mob dissipated, and Dr. King saved four white police officers' lives that day. It's an interesting story, because why did God choose Martin Luther King? We remember him now. We remember the story. We remember who he was and the movement that he was part of. But why Martin Luther King? You probably all heard his I Have a Dream sermon, but his I Have a Dream sermon was fascinating. He was one of 30 plus speakers that day, and actually for the first 20 minutes of it, it was boring as heck. Most people weren't paying attention. He was just reading off his script and his notes. Somebody whispered in his ears, get off your notes, Martin, and tell him about your dream. So he got off notes and started talking about his dream, and we remember that speech today, because somebody whispered in his ear, get off notes, and tell him about your dream. 
And so Martin Luther King has gone down in history as an incredible character, a man of great drive, who had a moment in his kitchen table staring at the bottom of his cup, ready to give up. I don't know where you're at, I don't know where your lives are, but we reach moments in our lives that are pivot points, don't we? When we have one option and we have another option, and one option will lead one way and another option will lead another way, and we have a choice of what to do in the middle of it. I'm so glad God spoke to Martin in that moment. Many of you don't know the story of the YMCA, I'll just introduce some because otherwise I'll, I'll kind of, I'll, I'll not get it in. Um, Martin Luther King and every black leader of the civil rights marches in the United States in the 1950s and 60s was trained in debate and leadership in the black YMCA. Because they believed in non-violent empowerment of the young people who were frustrated with the injustices in their community. And so they gave them safe haven to learn how to voice their concerns and articulate the injustices. And out of it came a movement of people phenomenal. And the YMCA at that time was segregated in the US, so they weren't exactly you know, towing the line very well. But in the midst of it, we have that movement. So Martin Luther King is a classic example of what God can do with somebody from a difficult circumstance, from, the, from, a, from a difficult background, from, from, from somewhere you wouldn't expect greatness to come from. Let's turn to Luke for a moment, because if you go, Gareth, you're from the wine's game, you need to bring the Bible in, just remember it's a Christian thing. Luke, Luke 5, we're going to talk about the call of the first disciple, most of you have heard of Peter, I'm sure. Now it happened while the crowd was pressing around him, that's Jesus, and listening to the word of God. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that's Peter's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let your nets down for a catch. Let's pause. At the time of Jesus, they had a, a tradition or a way of educating children and young people of the day. It was mostly done through the synagogues. And so if you were a young boy or girl, but the girls tend not to go beyond the ten-year-old bracket for the education, but if you were a young boy and girl, when you were first going to school at synagogue, you would be taught how to memorize the first five books of the Old Testament. Can you imagine that for a moment? By the age of 10 years old, a bit like sats these days, you would be examined on how good you could remember the first five books of the Old Testament. They would do things like this. They would say one verse, but expect, expect you to be able to say the verse before or the verse after it. They would expect you to recite whole sections of it. And so these 10-year-olds were, were examined on how good they were. If they were good enough, if they were the best students, they would be invited to go into the next three years of education. And the next three years of education, they would memorize the rest of the Old Testament. Wow. They would be able to recite the lot. And the best of the best of the best of that bracket would then get invited to study the Talmud, which are the, 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 kind of the, the commentaries that are going beyond it. And then if the best of the best of them about the age of 16 years old, would sit down with rabbis in the community. And the rabbis would test them. There would be various games they would play. 
where they would test them with theology, but not quote the verse, they would quote the verse before it. And the student would be expected to know what was the verse afterwards that they were referencing to, and then reply with another verse, but it would have to be the verse before or the verse after, the one they were expecting, and there would be this game that was played, this interplay, fantastic. So when we read the story about Jesus sitting in the temple, talking to the Jewish leaders and answering questions and asking questions, and they were amazed at his knowledge, that is what they were doing. And so the best of the best of the best students, a rabbi would say, I want to test you. And the student would come along and they would do this interplay, a bit like a viver if you've ever done that sort of thing. They would do this interplay with the rabbi and they would try and convince the rabbi that they were worthy of being one of their followers. And if they were good enough, the rabbi would turn around to the student and say, come follow me. Learn my way. It was known as a yoke. Learn my yoke. But if the student wasn't good enough, at any one of these stages, at 10 years old, at 13 years old, or about 16 to 18 year olds, if the student wasn't good enough, they would hear this phrase from the mouth of their teacher and their rabbis. They would, they would hear the phrase, go and apply your father's trade. What it would mean is simply this, Go and do the family business. Why back into the text? Peter is fishing. That's the family business. Peter didn't pass the tests. In these days, the thing you would all want to do when you grew up would be to be a rabbi, to be in the professionals. That was when you made it. The Jewish mothers would be walking around and introducing their sons. This is Benjamin, and this is Judah, and they're going to be rabbis one day. And they would be joyous if their kids had made it, a bit like these days, you know, this is the doctor, and this is the lawyer, you know. Or the kids maybe they want to dream of being the next Stephen Gerrard, or Wayne Rooney, I'm getting old now. The next Foden or the next Lionel Messi or Ronaldo. That's, that's made it. And yet these kids, Simon, James, John, Andrew, these fishermen are plying their father's trade. At one point in their lives, their dreams were shattered with the words, go and ply your father's trade. And so they're fishermen, and they're probably quite good at it, because they're still fishermen. And in this moment, we have this rabbi. What do the rabbis represent? The best of the best of the best. The rabbis who know how to memorize the scriptures, know how to recite, know how to interact, know how to debate, know their theology inside and out. The rabbis that would be those that would cast judgments, those that would teach, those that would interact with the priests and direct the nation. The rabbis walking off the beach and teaching. Look at all the attention the rabbis get. And then this rabbi turns around to Peter and he says, Peter, I want to get your boat put out somewhere. And so he puts it out into deep water and he's going to go down his neck. Simon says, hang on, we've worked hard all night, caught nothing. But I'll do as you ask, go down the net. Peter's basically saying this, you might be good at teaching. You might be good at the rabbi stuff, but you just stepped into my turf. You don't know fishing like I know fishing. 
You don't know business like I know business. You may be good at the preaching stuff, Pastor. Right? You might be good at the, the kind of the interaction with the text. But you, you don't know how to make a wood table. You don't know plumbing. You don't know electricians. You don't know how to kick a ball from 30 yards and bend it around a, a wall and, and get it to the top right hand corner of the dog. You don't, you don't have to do that. So Peter's humoring the rabbi. He says, all right, you know, you've told me you're the rabbi, all right, we'll let you have your moment, we'll put the nets out. And that's what he's doing in this moment. So he lets his nets out. So he says, when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boats for them to come and help them, and they came and they filled both boats, and they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down on Jesus' feet, he says, Get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He says, I'm not good enough. Like, you're even better at fishing than me. And all of his sense of insecurity, and all of his sense of I'm not good enough, and all of those waves of what he studied when he was at rabbi school and didn't quite make it, heard the phrase, go by your father's trade. He's now applying his father's trade and the rabbi's still better at him than it. Not good enough. You make me feel terrible. You just show me how useless I am. You just show me up in front of all of these people that you're even a better fisherman than we are. We spent all night trying to catch fish, and in one moment you picked the right moment, the right position, and you even told us where to put the nets. You knew exactly what to do. You were this dude that knows how to fish, and you were even passing all the tests. I'm not good enough to get out of my sight, you made me feel terrible. It's fascinating when you read the, the, the kind of the context and you read what's going on here. For amazement that seized him, and all his companions, because of the catch of fish which they had taken. They were James, John, sons of Zebedee, partners of Simon. Jesus said to Simon, do not fear, from now on you will catch men. They brought in their nets to land, left everything and followed them. Jesus turned around and said, follow me. They hadn't passed the test. They hadn't qualified theologically. They hadn't interacted like a rabbi would expect you to interact in order to be good enough to be a student. And all of their hopes and dreams were shattered on the rocks many years ago. They're now just doing some fishing. The rabbi's just proved he's a better fisherman than them. And now the rabbi turns around and says, come follow me. I'll teach you how to catch people. And the Bible says, they left everything and followed him. They just left one of the big, biggest catches of fish they've ever had in their lives. They just left, and they followed the rabbi. The massive blessing, this huge amount of fish that would, would have blessed an entire village, and they just left it, and they're following Jesus now. What's interesting is Jesus' trade is catching people. And so he's teaching them that he's going to teach them to apply his father's trade. And I love that swing and that twist. I've only in the first set of verses, and I've already gone far in time. God bless you. you. You're listening slowly. Um, let me speed up. The next scene, I'm going to wind this forward, and you'll find it in Mark 4, and I'm going to start paraphrasing it a little bit. You'll be able to find the verses behind me. It starts from verse 33. Mark 4. 
we've got the story of another boat. Jesus has now got disciples that are following him. He's going around teaching. And every now and again, he needs to go on a journey from one place to the next, to begin teaching in the next place. Jesus gets into a boat with his disciples, and of course the disciples are fishermen, and they're on familiar waters, they know how to sail. So they're in this boat, and they're on this journey, and a storm comes up. And so as this storm is raging around, the fishermen are sailing the boat through a storm. I love it in the book of Mark. Mark was Peter's translator. So when you read the book of Mark, you're reading Peter's sermon illustrations and stories coming out, and you get a little bit of Peter's personality in Mark, because it's always like, suddenly this happened, and suddenly this happened, and you just get this idea of what he was like. And even in the stories in the Gospels, you see this quite impetuous and impulsive character in the person of Peter. So Peter's, Peter's helping to sail this boat, and, on, and, and there's this beautiful line in the book of Mark, Jesus was sleeping on a cushion, you won't read it in any of the other Gospels. But in this one, it says that Jesus was asleep in the bottom of the boat on a cushion. Everybody else is working their backsides off, trying to sail through a storm. And this rabbi bloke, who they're still not quite sure who he is, is asleep on a cushion. It's nice, isn't it? You ever felt like God's asleep? I'm the only one. Have you ever said these words? It's alright for you up there on your cozy couch of eternity, on your lovely heavenly lounge, yeah, relaxing on your cushion, Jesus. But do you realise how hard it is for me down here? Do you realise how difficult things are? Do you realise how hard this moment is? I was driving at home one day, and um, I saw when he was about three, picked him up from nursery, and we're driving home, and my son's in the car seat to the left, and I'm driving, and um, Jack turns around, his name's Jack, turns around to me, he says, Danny, is Jesus bigger than you? He's been singing that song, isn't it? My God is a great big God, and I think, you know, bless him. You know, you know well, how sometimes kids' translation of theology just doesn't work, you know? Yes, yes, Jack, Jesus is bigger than me. Oh, wow. Because when they're three, you know, that's huge, isn't it? You know, Jack, he's bigger than you. Yeah, he's bigger than me. Could he beat you up, Jack? <laughs> he's Jesus. He's, he's making my other love. You know, he's an AJ. He wouldn't beat me up. Beat me up. I don't know. Um, he wouldn't beat me up. Oh, Jack, he wouldn't beat me up. But yeah, he could beat me up. If he wanted to, Jesus could beat me up. You know, if it was a fight, Jesus would deck me. Yes, yes, Jack. Jesus could beat me up. Wow! Jesus could hit. Jesus could beat you up. Yes, he could beat me up. Wow, he must be big. A couple of minutes going by, just driving under the viaduct in Chelmsford. I remember it clearly. Jack turned around and said, Could Jesus squash that car? Jack, there's people in the car. There's, there's people in that car. Could, could he squash it though? Yes, he could squash. We can move the people out of the car and imagine Jesus for a moment. Yes, he could squash the car. He's, he's bigger than the car, Jack. Wow! Could he crush that building? This is the World Sun Alliance headquarters in offices in Chelmsford. It's a beautiful building that they built on the roundabout near the viaduct, if you've ever been. And uh, could, could he crush that building? Yes, he could crush the building. What, with his giant toe? I'm thinking. He's got a jewelry giant version of Jesus going on his head. 
like so naive, life is so much more complex than that, Jack. But look, Jack, Jesus is bigger than everything. Yeah, he's like, wow, Jesus is bigger than everything. And because of course, you, you don't say those things to children, you tell them how big Jesus is. But they will learn, right? They'll learn. But life's a bit bigger than that. A few days later, I've got my father in law in the kitchen of our house. It wasn't a very big kitchen. We practically could have bumped noses. And um, we're sitting having coffee. My father-in-law goes to a very different church in a different part of, of, of Essex. And, uh, well, went to a different church in a different part of Essex. And he's in tears in the kitchen. Into this church for over 40 years. He used to work in Esso as a chartered accountant. He's given a lot into that church over the years. And they had a pastor in that church who'd been there about two years who had just announced that he had done all God had called him to do in that church and was moving on. In the time that he had been there, he had spent most of the reserves of the money in the church, had demanded a higher salary, had decided to stop all the old people's work because he wanted to focus on the young people, even though the vast majority of people in the church were older. He had split the church, people had left. He made his announcement from the platform and in his contract they had to pay for three months after he left. But in the last week, it was found out that he'd had an affair with one of the elders' wives. He'd broken his marriage. My father was in tears. Where's God? Forty years of giving, the church split, 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 and went. It's gone. All of that, all of that time, all that effort, all that volunteering, all the typing. He's in his tears. He was 75 at the time. 75 year old man in tears. Where's God? Where's God? What? How could he? In bounces is Jack. Three years old. Daddy, did you know Jesus is bigger than everything? Do we pray out of panic? 
Do we pray out of worry? Or do we remember that in the midst of it all, the three year old could walk into a room and say, Daddy, did you know Jesus is bigger than everything? And I thought in my super theology that he was a naive little child when he was singing, My God is a great big God, thinking about Jesus having a giant pair of flip flops able to crush the World Sun Alliance building. And yet in the midst of it, he had a better idea of who Jesus was than I did, and I needed his vision into my world because he was at peace in the midst of my storm, and he needed to speak peace into my storm by reminding me who Jesus was. Isn't that amazing? I just think, I just think that's, maybe it's just me, I find that sort of thing just phenomenal. And what's this journey of faith that Peter's on? Let's go quickly, look at this time, it's ticking on, my goodness me. I've only done 25 minutes, so you're all right, I've got, I've got a bit more grace. Let's go to Matthew 14 for a moment. And Matthew 14 is the only bit that records Peter stepping out of the boat. You notice that? So Mark, who is Peter's translator, doesn't record Jesus walking on the water and Peter stepping out of the boat. But Matthew does, because Matthew remembers it. And Peter didn't want to talk about it. Isn't that interesting? I just think that's fascinating. I look at these and I think oh, it's, it's really interesting. So Matthew 14, we get the story of Jesus walking on the water. So what, what had happened was Jesus... Has, has been speaking all day, he's tired, he's going to go up to the mountain to pray, and he tells his disciples, guys, go to the other side, I'll meet you on the other side. So they get in a boat without Jesus. He's not on a cushion in the bottom of the boat. And um, they start sitting out, and the storm hits them, and they're going, oh, again, for goodness sake, every day in time we get on this thing, there's a storm that's pulling on. But they're out in the storm, and they get buffeted by the waves. The Bible talks about the four watch of the night. Towards the end, they've been fighting this storm, all night, trying to keep the water out, trying to stop the waves from turning the boat over, continuing to swing this thing to the direction of the next wave. They're really working hard. And they're exhausted. And then, out on the water comes an omen. I've never met a fisherman that doesn't believe in omens, right? So, comes this omen, this, this figure walking on water towards them in the middle of the storm. And so they look, they get grief, most of them saying it's, it's a ghost. So the word phantasm in the Greek there. So they, you know, it's a, it's, it's a phantom, it's a ghost. And um, I don't you know, can ghosts talk, I don't know. But, um, but they say, what well, Peter says, oh, it's, it's the Lord. And he calls out to me, if it's you, Lord, call to me and I'll come out to you. Because Peter's learned that it's safer with that dude than it is being in my own comfort zone, my own skills, and my own talents and abilities. So he's, he's learning as he goes, right? So, so Peter then, the God's, uh, Jesus says to him, come on, it's me, Peter, come on. Peter recognises the voice and steps out of the boat and starts walking on water towards Jesus. There's a storm, there's the wind, there's the wave, there's his men still pulling the rigging, trying to hold this thing in the middle of this storm. And then there's this guy who spoke peace into a storm once and he's seen it, so he's believing in this too. And he's starting to walk on water towards this guy. And then he goes, oh, hang on a minute. What on earth am I doing? Well, I'm not on earth, am I? What on water am I doing? Have you ever tried to walk on water? Try the various swimming pools when I'm on holiday. Because it's safe then. You look a bit daft, but like... And I always go squash and go head first straight in. Usually a bit of a slap on the chest, and I just cover up the redness for a little while until it's gone before I get out of the water, because you don't want that. And Oh, the child is trying to walk in on water, what on earth am I doing? And he starts to sink. And so he cries out, Jesus, help me. Jesus grabs his hand, gets him, helps him back into the boat, and then kind of sort of calms the storm, as you would, 
And, um, and then he's all still. And then he, he, he said, why did you doubt? Why, why did you doubt? Hang on a minute. I just did about seven steps on water, Jesus. I can't do one. Yeah. Peter did a, a blinking good job. Right? And then you get back in the boat. There's no comment about the lack of faith of the other disciples that didn't get out in the first place, right? And, and I would, if I was there, just for fun, if I was Matthew, I'd want to turn around and Peter says, yeah, Peter, where's your faith? Come on. It's like, you know, you, you could have done a few more steps, Peter. Like, just a bit of a laugh for it, really. But what is Jesus doing with Peter in this moment? See, sometimes the storms go, right? Like, Jesus clicks his fingers and the, the storm's gone. Come. I, I love it in, in, in the verses we read previously, where it says that they were really afraid at that point. Like, who's this guy? Suddenly their attention switched to the bigness of Jesus in the room. But in this moment, the storm's not gone away. And Jesus is inviting Peter to step out into the storm to be at peace in the midst of the storm, in the knowledge of the storm, but still be able to walk at peace in the midst of it. And the most amazing man, I, one of the most amazing men I ever met was when I was working in medicine, I was doing a pain clinic, and um, there was a guy who referred to me by his GP and he had a painful shoulder. So, can you look after pain relief? Can you kind of set up the right medication? And that sort of thing. So I, I kind of interviewed this chap, who was an old chap, and uh, I said, you've got a painful shoulder? Like, yeah, yeah. So I took some of the story, the kind of pain, and where it was, and that, and it had been there. been there a while. And then it went to the examination. We've got to take his shirt off. And he's got this bullet hole wound here, and a big one out the back, where the bullet had gone in and then blown out the back of his shoulder. And I said, uh, you, got, you, be, you were shot. So yeah, I was a, a parrot during World War II. They dropped us behind enemy lines on, on the D-Day landings. And we had to take one of the open bridges. And uh, I was on my, I was with my parachute and I went down and the Germans started shooting up, up at us. And one of them got me in the shoulder. So with the good arm, I got the gun. And I got three of them on the way down. And one of them charged me. So I got him with the, with, with the gun on the way back. And he bayoneted me in the leg. So, Right, show me the bayonet wing then. So he pulled his trousers down, it's a clinic, you're allowed. And he pulled his trousers down, and there's this wound here, and it slides out the back of his leg where the bayonet, he'd landed, and then the guy had fallen on him, and it sliced open the back of his leg. Blinking heck. So forget clinic now, right? You're in the story, like you are, right? So what happened next? And he said, well, they shot my mate's parachute, and he broke both his legs as he landed. So I had the mate, and I had me. He says, so I gave him a gun, and I put him on my good arm, which is his bad leg. And I said, we had to go and get help, so I went to go and get help. He said, well, how far was help? Ten miles. I said, and you've got a painful shoulder. <laughs> it must really hurt. <laughs> what else do you say? Right? Wow. Friends, none of us are fixed. None of us have got it all together. Most of us, if we're honest, in life, we walk with a limp and a gun shopping. But most of us in life are carrying stuff. It might be family story, it might be history, it might be things we've made mistakes in. Maybe personal injuries, physical injuries, mental health problems. It could be a number of different things, but it doesn't mean that we've got no use 
and we're no good, and we, God cannot use us. And like this guy, so I know where I can get help, and I've got a good arm. So I'm going to use what I've got. And together, with a guy that's got two good arms but no good legs, we're going to figure out a way of getting to the place of safety and security and help where we can both get looked after. So he picked up his mate and he carried him ten miles. And that guy's alive today, sitting in a clinic, because he chose not to give up on the floor with a bullet wound in the shoulder and a bayonet wound in the leg and a mate that's got two broken legs. But they took what they'd got and they made the most of it. Peter didn't have much. He wasn't the best disciple in the world, but to Jesus he was. Peter got out of a boat he knew perfectly well how to sail, but because he was a storm and he wasn't going to survive without this Jesus too, he decided to step out onto water and have a go. And he started to sink. And he started to make a mess of it. But Jesus grabbed his hand, told him he had no faith. Bless him. Don't doubt, he said. Don't doubt. What was Peter doubting? That Jesus could walk on water? No. He wasn't doubting that Jesus could walk on water. He wasn't doubting that Jesus could pick his fingers and solve the problem, because Jesus is bigger than everything. He wasn't doubting who Jesus was. He was doubting who he was in Jesus. He was doubting that God could use him. He was doubting that he could do the things that Jesus could do. He was doubting his ability, not Jesus' ability. And so when Jesus turned around and said, why did you doubt, Peter? You could have walked on the water with me. You didn't need to focus on the storm, just focus on how big your Jesus is. And in those moments, Peter's learning more lessons about this. That it doesn't matter what I have to carry in life, what I have to do in life, what I have to I can put faith in God. And many of us have been there, right? We, we, we can do this. And we have great moments of triumph. You see it in the Bible where Jesus has sent his disciples out and they come out and say, even the demons fled from us. And these great moments. Wide forward now to John 21, and I'm going to bring the plane into land rather than fly it to the side of the hill and let the plane into land. John 21. Most of you know the story, I'm not going to read all of it, so I'll let the guys at the back figure out how they're going to flip through while they follow me. God bless you this morning. John 21. Jesus has been crucified, he's risen again from the dead, and he's starting to appear to his disciples in various places. It's kind of cool. Peter, of all the disciples, didn't just flee, he denied him. Peter's got a problem. In the midst of a crowd of people, they turned around into Peter while Jesus was being led up for trial and execution. And they said, you were with him. You've even got the right accent. And Peter says, no, I don't know him. Three times. Jesus even told him this would happen. This guy who did the fish thing, who was in the storms, who walked on water, who was probably the oldest disciple, because it always seems to be Simon Peter that goes first. This guy denied his rabbi, denied his saviour three times in public when his life was on the line, and fled. So the Bible says he fled weeping. Even in the running race between John and Peter, John arrived first. I wonder if Peter was the faster runner, but he didn't want to get there first. And so, so Peter's there, and he's, he's gone back to what? The fishing. What did Jesus call him to do? Fish for men. 
What's Peter doing? Failed him. Messed it up. Denied him three times. I ruined him. You know, we, in modern ministry, we call it putting the hand to the plow and looking back is not fit for service in the kingdom of God. Peter's messed up. And it says that they were out fishing. And in the morning, so they were fishing all night, they see a figure on the beach lighting a fire. It's the Lord. And Peter, without thinking, takes his hand of so jumps into the water and swims towards the beach. And the Bible says he gets to, he gets to Jesus and he can't speak. He can't say, does it say anything? Says, they landed, burnt, cold fish on it. Jesus is going to bring the fishing cord. Peter said it's the Lord and he gets to Jesus and he doesn't say anything. What do you say when you betrayed somebody? What do you say when you're the one that's betrayed? I had somebody say to me once, Gareth, there's one, one thing worse than being betrayed in life, and that's finding out you're the betrayer. The man who said that used to be the vice president of Operation Mobilization. And they sent missionaries out into parts of the world about 40 years ago. And at the time they sent them out, they said, sell everything. Go, call God in your life. We spent all coming back from the mission field. They had no pension, no money, no provision, no houses. And they've told me, there's one thing worse than being betrayed, Gareth. That's realizing you're the betrayer. Peter gets to Jesus. And I'll pick it up from verse 15. They finished breakfast. And Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, 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 son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Son of John, Do you love me? Yeah, Lord, I love you. And he said, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Son, Son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said it to him a third time. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know I love you. He said, Tell my sheep. The Greek language is, is fascinating in the use of the word love. Twice Jesus asks him to look out for, do you love me unconditionally? Three times Jesus, uh, Peter replies, you're my friend. Fillion. On the third time Jesus asks him, do you love me? He uses Peter's word. Fillion, you're my friend. Peter couldn't release himself from that moment to get to where Jesus was at. He knew he wasn't worthy enough to love like Jesus loves. He knew he couldn't quite say, I love you the way you expect me to love you, because he's betrayed him three times. He's denied him. And yet in that moment, Jesus takes the man who went back to what he knew he could do in his father's trade and redeems him back to what he's called him to do. Then later on in the text, he says, I'll send you away, and somebody will lead you where you don't want to go. In other words, you'll die for me this time. And you all can almost imagine Peter saying, oh, thank goodness for that. At least the next prophecy is, I'm not going to let you down again. Isn't that fascinating? 
But in these moments, we remember. I don't know where you've come from. I don't know what your family history is. I don't know what your story is. I don't know what your background is. Like mine, you know, quirky as heck. Like my background just is, you know, it's good at tea, but everything else just seems to change, right? It's one thing, the next thing, the next thing. Next thing. I have no idea what God is leading me in the future. I've got no idea what the future's going to hold. I've got no idea if I'm going to say the right thing or the wrong thing in public. I've got no idea about me and my future and my destiny. I'm going to do my best with what I've got, and I'm sometimes going to let people down. And I know it because I'm frail and I'm broken. And like Peter, I probably wouldn't have passed the test. And yet Jesus chose me. Not to be somebody who just preaches on platforms, but to be somebody who sits down and makes tea, that sleeps in a homeless shelter for a couple of months, just so I can have breakfast with them and understand where they're at. That takes a job on, like I've taken on now, and the job before, where I was pastoring in the church, there was this gap of six months, and God tapped me on the shoulder one day, in the middle of that six months of not knowing what was coming next, and said, if I never used you again, would you be okay with that? We have great highs and great lows, but it's not about position, it's not about status, it's not about success, it's not even about failure, it's about Jesus. And my first day in heaven, I walked kippers with Jesus over breakfast on a beach with a campfire. And I just want to hear him say, I love you, and give me an opportunity to say the same. From the gravestone, I'd rather have you walk with the Lord and then there's no more like you, not God than any great fanfare or otherwise. Because that's not what it's about. Whether you're in great peace or great storms, is he with you? And you were aware that you were with him. Just walk with him, just be with him, just sit with him, just tell him you love him. Hear him say he loves you. And as he leads you by the hand and takes you to places that you might want to go, you might not want to go. Understand, don't understand. Calls you to do things you're scared of. Or invites you to just be in the journey with him. This journey of faith that Peter led. That it wasn't about him and how good he was. That Jesus is bigger than everything. That Jesus calls him to be at peace in the midst of storms and to let the walk like he walks. And even in the midst of failure, Jesus hasn't, Jesus hasn't let him down and has got a root out of failure so that you can get your life back together. No matter how dark it is, no matter what consequences of them are, this Jesus is in the business of redeeming your life step by step by step by step and teaching you the journey of faith that is all about Him and all about what He can do in your life and bring a transformation to your life, your family, and the communities in which we live. And one day, we will all look back over the times we've got and see the hand of God leading guiding us through this life. Most of us, if we're honest, will never know the difference we make this side of eternity. But he knows what he's doing. Father, I thank you for these folks here who have listened very quickly. I thank you, Lord, for their lives and their families. I thank you, Lord, for whatever thread of faith they hold on to. Being that they think it's slim and thin in the midst of like circumstances and they're just barely holding on. Or be it like a giant ship's rope that's anchoring the things to, of life to faithfulness in you. Whichever one we are in between, and my suspicion is, Lord, that we're all just a piece of string. Whichever one it is, Lord, help us to hold on to you in the midst of all things. Help us to be like Jack with three and a half. 
who in the midst of a crisis with tears pouring down our eyes, speaks that Jesus is still bigger than this circumstance. Help us to be brave when you call us to be bold and step out in something you're asking us to do, not knowing what will hold us, not knowing about the certainties of life, unfamiliar from what we're used to, but just eyes fixed on you, holding on, and Lord, when we sink, because it's inevitable. Be right there when we call your name and reach out and grab our hands and teach us the way of faith. And Lord, when we've failed, when we've let you down, when we've let our family down, when we're in the midst of our shame, when we've got nothing we can do and nothing we can say to make it better, take us to breakfast on the beach and ask us those questions that are the very root of our faith. Do you love me? And restore us, Lord, again to the hope that you can continue to use us and continue to drive us and continue to push us in the way you want us to go. And Lord, may we ever become more willing and ever become more full of faith as the pot of our lives is filling up with the goodness of your life, your spirit, and your gospel. May we love like we've never loved before in the weeks to come because we know our big God walks with us every day. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you.